more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, State. <laughs> Oregon State. Um, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and link to our uh, Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and we've had a very last-minute addition to tonight's guest list um, due to a bug taking out our scheduled guests, so hope you get better soon, Hannah. Um, but I am so grateful and delighted to welcome a dear friend of mine and lab mate, Rachel Kaplan. Rachel, thanks for saving the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I'm so delighted. I've been wanting to get a lot of... Um, the other people in the lab on the show and I feel like people have been hesitant and now you're just coming in to save the day so kind so glad I can be part of it <laughs> um because uh this was a very last minute uh request on my part um for any regular listeners it's going to be a slightly different format um we're not going to be getting too researchy today um but instead we're going to be talking about uh Rachel's very adventurous field work which happens where Rachel um, sometimes in the Western Antarctic Peninsula. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, it's going to get chilly. But before we, we get there, uh, Rachel, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at OSU. Mm-hmm. I am in the fourth year of my PhD now. Woo-hoo. And I'm originally from Fairbanks, Alaska, and very happy to be living in Oregon now. Um, I study whales with Lisa and then also krill as well, a really important food that many species eat. Um, yeah, and we're going to be sort of talking mostly on the krill side of things because that is predominantly the work that you have been uh, doing in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, so you sort of, I want to say just came back, but it's not that just anymore. You came back in October. It, it feels just to me as well, <laughs> but I got back in um, in early November. Yeah. November, yes, from uh, uh, a pretty long field, field season in Antarctica, several months. Yeah, yeah, it was six months through their winter. Right, and overwintering, which is not really typically what re- when researchers go down there. The majority sort of go down in the... Antarctic summer, which is our winter. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah, summer is definitely a lot more bustling there, but it was 
um, very exciting to be there in the winter to get to ask the types of questions that we can there and just to experience that place uh, in kind of this unusual time as well. Mm -hmm. So for for people that maybe aren't as familiar with, you know, doing polar research, how how is it possible for you to go down there to Antarctica, which just seems like a huge island of ice, um, you know, for six months? Like, how how does that work? What does that look like? Yeah. So the U.S. maintains three different research stations there, as well as um, a couple research vessels. Uh, which were a really key part of the season for us. And um, there are several other countries around the world that have a similar type of presence. Um, So it was definitely a big journey from Oregon to Antarctica. I think it took us um, maybe 10 days, between 10 days and two weeks, door to door. (laughs) Um, And we traveled to the tip of South America and hopped on a boat for four days, mm-hmm. and and that's what took us down there. Mm-hmm. And there's a very infamous um, part of the ocean that you have to cross to get from South America to Antarctica. Yes, the Drake Passage dun, is dun, dun. famous um, <laughs> because it is um, this unusual place in the world where there is no land at that latitude all around the globe. So the ocean can just do whatever it wants. It can get as big as it likes. Um, (laughs) But we were really lucky and it wasn't too bad for us. Both on the there and the back? Yes. Nice. Yeah, it it could have been a lot worse. So we were happy. (laughs) Um, But this uh, wasn't your first field season in Antarctica. How many times have you been down there before? Yeah, I had done two summer seasons there before. so it was it just meant that I was so excited to get back and to see it in a time of year when I hadn't been there before. It felt really special. Mm-hmm. What are what would you say are sort of some of the main differences in terms it, it, like from the lens of being a researcher going down there to do research between being there for summer and winter? Ooh, that is so interesting. Um, I think that. Because a lot more people do come down in the summer, there's so much work happening at once. And so the pace is just is is different. Um, And you also you're you're just a little more free in what you can do. Like, you know, all field work, you're limited by by the weather Mm -hmm. sometimes. But because there's so much daylight, depending on where you are in Antarctica, um, maybe 24 hours of daylight in the summer. Wow. And then so in the winter, it's, you know, reciprocally as as dark as Uh it gets. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, just having, you know, kind of tighter windows in terms of how long are your daylight hours to work in? Mm -hmm. um, What are the conditions? What will they let you do? What can you accomplish? Yeah, that was it just kind of all set a bit of a different pace. Mm. Being someone who's from Alaska, do you think it was easier for you to live with like the very limited daylight hours compared to maybe some of the other people that you went down with? I think it might have been because it was definitely it's something that feels very normal to me. Mm -hmm. And so it meant that I wasn't worried about it going in Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I I feel like, um, yeah, it was it was pretty it didn't feel too hard um, being there. But I did notice that um, I think the fast transition going from, you know, those beautiful lengthening days in Oregon right. um, in the late spring yeah. to all of a sudden it being quite a bit darker. That was uh, like a little surprising at first. Yeah. You essentially had a year of winter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It's been a lot of winter lately. Yeah. I guess it, uh, 
by the end of it, it'll be a year and a half of winter. I, before. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's why I've, I hadn't thought about it like that before. We've had these sunny days lately, though, so it's giving me a little taste of summer to keep me going. Yeah, we've had a great Oregon winter mm-hmm. so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do is 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 the like dealing with you know the lack of daylight in the winter is that something that um the station is sort of prepared for like is there a stockpile of you know vitamin d or you know the happy lights or is that just kind of like you need to know that this is something you are getting yourself into as a researcher and sort of come prepared yeah that's such a good question i think that um I think people really do tend to come prepared. They Mm -hmm. kind of anticipate it. There's a lot of vitamin D around. Um, (laughs) People are sharing generous. Absolutely. Yeah. We actually, they had us all as part of a a study we were doing. Everyone was taking vitamin D um, together, which is nice. You could help each other remember. Wow. You were all participating in a study about like what it means to overwinter in Antarctica? Yeah. It's really cool, actually. So, um, NASA kind of thinks of Antarctica as uh, an analog for space (gasps) in certain ways. Wow. Yeah. And so they've noticed um, similarities in what Mm. astronauts um, experience when they go to space in terms of um, like physical changes and impacts on their immune systems Mm. to what people experience at the coastal stations in Antarctica as well during the winter. Um, so they have been running an experiment at Palmer for, this might've been, that was maybe the, the third year and it will keep going for a couple more, um, to try to develop countermeasures for the astronauts to see, you know, what, what will make a difference to their health when they're in space and when they're coming back again. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. You are you are simultaneously doing the science and you are the science. It was kind of meta sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it was very fun. Does that mean was there also was like a NASA person that was leading the study w- there with you or is it just you get sort of a protocol from NASA and this is what you have to do? Yeah, our very wonderful lab manager um, did a lot of training and interfacing with um, the NASA project leads. And so she was running things on the ground for us. Um, And then we also had a fun, um, we had a Zoom session with the, the lead of that project and and he could tell us kind of more about the science and what they're seeing and hoping. And cool. yeah, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a Zoom session. Uh, I guess people can take from that that you have access to Internet at yeah. Palmer. What other sort of amenities do you have that maybe when one, you know, pictures this icy continent, you wouldn't think that that people might have? Oh, wow. Yeah. Palmer is so cozy and well set up. We're really lucky there. Um, there, you know, kind of every type of, um, place to live, um, exists in Antarctica kind of between like people refer to McMurdo as like the big city. It's, I think it maxes out at about 1200 people in the summer. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's a lot of infrastructure there all the way down to tiny little field camps with a few people living in tents Mm -hmm. and Palmer's kind of in the middle of that. Um, so it's pretty small in the summer. It's about 40 people in the winter, about 20. Wow. Um, and so there are just really two main buildings, um, but they are really well set up. We have a great little gym. Um, there's a lounge with a ton of movies, um, 
a bar that people hang out and play pool and darts and everything in. Um, we have a sauna. There's wow. someone turned like an old aquarium tank into a hot tub, you know, by the sea. Wow. So I don't even have a hot tub here. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's pretty cushy there. Um, and just for anyone who doesn't know, McMurdo, um, the the other station that uh, Rachel referenced is one that is maintained by New Zealand. I no, believe. So oh. McMurdo is actually um, the largest U.S. base, but oh, it wow. is right next to the New Zealand base. I just lied on air. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah a, fr- a mutual friend of ours Susie um spent part of her um summer field season down there uh at McMurdo and she told us that they have a part-time hair salon there so it's wild yeah that was something that I did not expect to hear about that existing yeah you can get pizza delivered at McMurdo it's crazy <laughs> there it's a whole nother wow, place wow wow okay <laughs> Um, you you did mention something to me um, before the interview that I think we should mention some um, an addition to the station that serves for fun and entertainment of everybody the wall in the warehouse oh, <laughs> yes I was telling Lisa that there's a whole um, kind of half of a warehouse aisle full of costumes um, <laughs> which is a lot of fun there are a lot of dress-up opportunities in Antarctica it turns out I I mean I bet like to you you know dress up in a hot dog costume and then go out on exactly. the ice I mean that's exactly. just so bizarre mm-hmm. <laughs> um I'm getting sort of I don't know vibes for I don't know creating like a very indie hipster music video or something oh oh my gosh I'm absolutely sure that's an opportunity for that yeah <laughs> um let's talk a little bit about um I guess what every sort of research team is doing down there differs but what did sort of your day look like and maybe touch a little bit on the research that you were doing down Mm. there yeah so our days were really variable which was part of what made it so fun I think um at the beginning of our six-month season we went on two different research cruises um to try to collect krill and also just learn more about the water column and the environment down there Um, And we brought the live krill that we caught back to station and we ran experiments for about three months. Um, And so our days were really determined by where we were um, in the experiment at any given time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, maybe we're in the lab for 10 hours a day. um, And other times it was kind of a quieter moment and we were on our laptops trying to get um, computer work done. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, pretty, pretty variable. Um, and tell us a little bit more about um, krill and sort of their life cycle and why um, it's of interest to sort of learn more about krill in the wintertime. Yeah, so krill are really amazing animals. They're um, they're relatively small. An Antarctic krill could be about the size of your thumb. Um, and they are pretty abundant in the Southern Ocean. Um, and so they're really an important prey for so many different animals there for whales and seals and seabirds. Um, and we were really interested in learning about their quality as prey and also how they might experience climate change Mm. in the future. Mm -hmm. And if the food that they have access to changes, how will that change, um, 
their their life cycles and their quality as prey for these other animals. So the lab experiments you were doing were, was looking at, in part, you know, if we increase temperatures, um, how does that affect their growth, for example? Yeah, exactly. So we were doing, we did growth experiments where we learned about the effect of temperature on how fast they grow. And also, this is a crazy fact, but krill can not only grow in length, they can also shrink. Um, Yeah, which they'll do um, often under warmer conditions. Um, So that was one type of experiment we did. And we also fed them different diets to learn about, you know, what is it like for krill um, to eat only diatoms, which are a type of um, algae of little ocean plants? Or what is it like for a krill that eats only copepods, these Mm. other little animals, Mm -hmm. um, or maybe a mixed diet? Mm -hmm. And how does that affect their own body composition, mm. their um, proteins and the fats in their body, which are so important to these other animals? Um, so we wanted to to learn how they changed as food as mm. well, based on what they were eating. What what is what do you think is the utility of shrinking in size? Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's so wild, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think part of it is that if you, let's say you're in a situation where maybe you don't have enough food to meet your daily caloric needs, um, if you can become smaller than those caloric needs lessen Mm. and you can metabolize the fats that are part of your body um, to help sustain you and wait for, you know, more um, uh, hardier times in terms of the food available to you. Um, So I think it's a pretty incredible um, mechanism. That's fat, especially because, I mean, they're uh, they're invertebrates, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, often we think of like, oh, invertebrates, they don't have a you know whatever a, a spine yeah or and a brain and therefore you know they're not as high thinking and they they're very simplistic but that is that's as highly complex oh my gosh they absolutely are i yeah i agree i think that you know an animal that's so different than us we maybe it's it's harder for us to understand them in many ways mm-hmm. or they don't seem as sophisticated mm-hmm. but yeah invertebrates are crazy wow. they're doing wild <laughs> things out there and it's yeah. very cool i just think it's so like from the um sort of like science permitting mm-hmm. aspect where yes. you know you don't really need huge like it's not a big um sort of uh it's not a whole thing to try and get permits to do prey sampling, totally. for example, versus, you know, if you want to study a mammal or a seabird, there's all these protocols that you have to follow and approvals you need to get. But that doesn't really exist for inverts, but they're clearly phenomenal and fascinating yes. and can do all these cool things. No, that's such a good point. Yeah, it's um, yeah, there's yeah, definitely a lot less kind of cultural value maybe put on them mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, but they are so valuable yeah. and very cool. And am I am I getting this wrong or is there also a krill fishery down in the Southern Ocean? Yeah, that's right there. Um, so you might have seen um, at the grocery store, maybe like krill oil supplements. Um, that's kind of a really big product driving the fishery. And then also um, people will use krill as feed for aquaculture. Mm. And so there is this big industry Um And it's really, it's very, very sad to me um, Mm. because you have, um, 
you know, these fishing vessels, this industry are directly competing with these animals that mm-hmm. need to eat krill to survive. Mm-hmm. And that's especially important in the winter, right? Mm-hmm. When, um, when, you know, food is scarcer mm-hmm. out there. Um, and it makes me really sad too, because a lot of, you know, the things that are, are touted as these benefits of krill oil mm-hmm. are the, um, kind of compounds and nutrients that come from the the algae that the krill eat Mm -hmm. and so it's really the plants that Mm -hmm. that are offering these great benefits and and i we don't need to kill krill to get there right we don't Um, need to take the krill out of that system exactly that is literally supporting almost every predator down there exactly in some way yeah wow i did not know that krill was being used for krill oil supplements yes they are yeah they're becoming quite common which is really upsetting so yeah please say no to krill oil yeah is it the same i do they have like this is it like omega-3 like in fish that they yeah i think that's one of the wow yeah i think that's one of the things that they're yeah popular for i mean it's all it's also always been so bizarre to me the the um practice of taking wild animals to then feed them to fish farmed fish is that is also just a very bizarre concept to me like in order to sustain this farming thing we do have to take a bunch of fish or inverts out of the ocean too in order to sustain that yeah that's a good a good yeah. point it's just a another kind of weird part of these systems we've built yeah well okay so say no to krill oil eat algae instead i love that yeah <laughs> um is there something i remember when you um you know came back after six months down there overwintering you were ready to come you know you were ready to come home you know experience a lot of um things that you maybe didn't have down there you know the fresh mm-hmm. maybe fruit and veg mm-hmm. were running out by the mm-hmm. end mm-hmm. nice to see family and friends yeah but now having been back since november what is something that you miss about being there oh i miss i mean as happy as i truly am to be here i miss it all the time i miss everything about mm-hmm. it um I think something that is very, very special there, especially in the winter maybe, is um, just the very tight-knit community that develops because, Mm -hmm. you know, there were only, there were 20 of us Mm -hmm. um, and we saw no other human beings for, I don't know, five months or something. Um, And, and so it's, it's really... There, there is something that is really special about that very intense um, experience of community and just the way that you get to know and appreciate each other. Um, so, yeah, I think that's one of the things that I miss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I mean, there there are so few people. I, I remember we were, you know, we were able to message each other while you were away. Mm-hmm. And one day I just got a photo of you assisting with like some seal oh, tagging. Yeah. And that's just, yeah, I mean, there's limited people out there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like all hands on deck. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I think that really is an incredibly special thing. There is the opportunities that you get that, yeah, you can, you know, go be a note taker for the seal team because mm-hmm. they need some extra hands mm-hmm. or you know, you can help the chef cook one day or, you know, whatever it is. It's, um, yeah, it's very fun to get to be in these different roles mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And in a way you have to be for like, not to be dramatic, but for survival. It's yeah. I mean, yeah. it's totally true. And yeah, there were definitely times 
where it was like, okay, my job is to be like cheerful today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, (laughs) I'll, I'll be, you know, just part of like helping everyone be happy today. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. Um, What is one thing, and you may need to sort of go back further in time to maybe the first time you went down to Antarctica, Mm -hmm. but what is one thing you wish you would have known going down before maybe your first field season or maybe before this first overwintering like something that you were like huh I was sort of unprepared for this aspect of what it means to do research down here Ooh, that is such a good question I think that's the one question I didn't prep you for so sorry (laughs) no that's okay (laughs) hmm I think well The first time that I went down, especially, I, I mean, it was something that I just, you know, I'd wanted to do since I was a child Mm -hmm. and I was so excited and there were zero doubts in my mind and it, it definitely, I remember it really hitting me the first night that I was there. I remember looking back out across the water where we'd come from and realizing that I was not going to cross that water again for six months, whether I wanted to or not. And that that included if something happened to family or friends that I was just not going to be there. Mm. And that was part of the decision that I had made. Mm. And, you know, then I woke up the next morning and everything was wonderful for six (laughs) months. Um, But that was definitely like a kind of a bigger mental thing to grapple with than Mm -hmm. I had realized, which I really did grapple Mm. with when I returned. Wow, that is something that I've never thought about. For me, it's always just been like, oh, Rachel is doing this like phenomenal research down in Antarctica and she's just living, yeah, this like little kid dream that I've had too, you know? But yeah, not, I've, wow, I've never considered it from that perspective. Like, if something happens here, you can't, yeah, you can't just be like, oh, I need to go. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it totally, I absolutely was, you know, living my little kid dream there. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you remember this that, before I left, I was really sad, mm. even though I was so excited mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just so sad to leave you guys mm-hmm. for six months. Yeah. That was really hard. Yeah. Um, and especially like the, you know, beautiful Oregon summer. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah, it was. I yeah, I did. I did miss the idea that I would, you know, be warm for a while, but it was, yeah, it's always the people, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking like doing all the fun summer things together. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for this one. Yay. Um, so having mentioned, you know, little kid dreams of going to, um, Antarctica, you know, if there's little kids listening or people that, you know, have had that little kid dream and they're thinking, this is so rad. How do I do this? What is, what is the path? to this is there a path how did you get there um yeah tell tell the listeners a little bit about that there are so many different paths um <laughs> to get there which is very cool and I think that's like you know I think that's maybe less apparent sometimes mm-hmm. or less known like it's amazing to go be a scientist there and that's really wonderful and it's also so wonderful to go be a chef there or a mechanic or a marine technician, or a doctor. Mm-hmm. There are so many different jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, just a lot of different paths can take you there. Um, my path really involved um, 
it was my senior year of college and I went to a job fair and I pretended to want all these jobs that I did not want. <laughs> I increasingly realized um, like that what day kinds of jobs? just like environmental consulting oh, uh-huh. and like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it was like the next day that I reached out to a grad student who I knew had worked in Antarctica and he was really nice and sat down with me and suggested people for me to email and mm-hmm. and things to put in that introduction email. And so basically I just sent a lot of emails until someone said yes. Wow. And was that was that Kim who is now your advisor? No. Or, oh, so okay. that was actually the first person that I worked for is this really wonderful um person who studies the microbial community in the ocean there Mm -hmm. um his name is Hugh Ducklow and um yeah he was wonderful to work for and then I did I met Kim um Mm -hmm. who was down there studying krill that summer Mm -hmm. and at the end of the season I said to her I'm gonna come be your grad student (laughs) and she said okay and there was really no path for that Uh in that moment and Uh it you know I did a lot of other things in between and it was probably at least five or seven years later that I did actually move to Oregon to be her student. And now here you are sitting opposite me talking about it. Pretty wonderful. <laughs> um, Rachel, we've sort of come to the end of our time. Okay. And I'm so grateful to you for jumping in. This has been so fun, me getting to uh, just quiz you live on air. <laughs> All the questions, you know, that I've always wanted to ask and maybe never found the time to. So thanks. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, always so fun to hang out. And this is just another wonderful way that we have now. Yeah, just a public hangout. (laughs) Um, Before I let you go, there are a couple of traditions on the show Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that we always do. Um, There's three. The first is that we ask you what the favorite thing is about your... I'm saying we as if there's my Mm co-host here, but it's just me. Uh, (laughs) What is the favorite thing about your research? I think... So I study whales, much like Lisa, really. I study whales and this um, other animal that they eat. And so I think it's that sense of connectivity mm-hmm. um, of thinking about all these different animals and how they interact together over space and time. And then also I think that theme of connectivity really extends you know, back also to people mm-hmm. and, and community like we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And that's such a special part of of research as well I think Mm -hmm. do you sometimes make like those bridges a lot between I don't know when you're like reading about how scientists talk about predators and prey do you sometimes mirror it to humans you know I have been a little more lately Mm -hmm. because as you well know I'm (laughs) deep in um reading as I study for kind of the big test of grad school, mm-hmm. your, your qualifying exams. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really finding myself, since I'm kind of steeped in these ideas, mm-hmm. I am kind of thinking about parallels like that, that a little more. That is so cool. It's fun. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Not the fun part of studying yes. for terrifying <laughs> qualifying exams. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. Our second uh, tradition on the show is that we ask our guests to give a piece of advice which can be to whomever you like, whatever group you like. So tell us who this piece of advice is for and what it is. I I think it's for, I guess maybe graduate students or undergraduates or people who are just kind of interested in, um, in being part of science mm-hmm. in whatever way. Um, I remember... I'm like kind of a I'm a non-traditional student is the label that I've um, been given. (laughs) And when I was an undergrad, I remember being really um, 
unsure about whether seeing all the amazing detours that lots of people mm-hmm. take and um, and just all the fascinating things that that you can do. But then also, I think in science and academia and lots of jobs, there's kind of a pressure to be like quite directed mm-hmm. and not stray from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wasn't sure if I would kind of have the um, if I would be able to make the choice to take the detours that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I took a lot of detours. Mm-hmm. It turned out for, you know, I don't know, five years or seven years. And it was really wonderful. And I learned so much. And, um, yeah, I think just, you know, take take the detours that interest you. Mm-hmm. And you also, I really admire this about you, that you also sort of, um, you knew that you wanted Antarctic work to be part of your PhD. And, like, maybe at first when... Um, you know, your your research outline was coming together. It looked like maybe that wasn't really going to fit time wise or funding wise, but it's something it's like a detour that you wanted and you kind of insisted on and you got it, which I yeah. which I love. <laughs> yeah, it was really scary. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's scary to stand up for what you want. It you is. Did it and you got it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was scary and wonderful. And I feel really lucky to have two advisors who really see me mm-hmm. and and are here to support me and, yeah. and who made it happen yeah who were right alongside you for those detours yeah yeah, yeah. very <laughs> grateful for that <laughs> and the final tradition uh on the show is that you get to pick your outro song um which we we danced along to this already beforehand <laughs> so we know it's going to be a good one um tell tell the people what it is and why if you have a particular reason yeah so during this last field season in antarctica we as a community i would say got really into spotify's um 90s lesbian rock playlist i (laughs) highly recommend it and this is one of the songs that really grabbed us that we danced to a lot i am so surprised at the I don't at the like specificity of <laughs> of, um, of of Spotify playlists that yeah. they come up with. Yeah, yeah, and they really nailed it with this one. <laughs> All right, again, thank you, Rachel, so much for coming on the show. I've had so much fun, um, and so here is Rachel's pick. Um, it's "Back on the Chain Gang" by <laughs> the Pretenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Enjoy. Thanks, Lisa.
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.